welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Welcome to Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined by my always diplomatic co-host, Coach Trevor Connor. If we had to summarize sports nutrition in one word, it would probably be controversial or maybe just confusing. Endurance sports guidelines tell us we need to pack in the carbohydrates. Then we hear about Team Sky and other prominent athletes resorting to a nearly carbohydrate-free diet. Which one is the best? Frankly, do we even need to be eating the same way as a Grand Tour rider? One thing that's certain is that in the world of nutrition, keto has become a buzzword, and not only in the sports world. Terms like ketogenic diet have become some of the most searched dietary terms on Google. It's even made its way to the most important form of public opinion, the Saturday morning group ride conversation. But what is a ketogenic diet? And in a sport where high-carb pasta dinners and simple sugar sports drinks have been the norm for decades, why are we even talking about a very low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet? Today, we'll delve into that subject. First, what is meant by a ketogenic diet, and what are ketones? Evolution felt there was an important reason we evolved to use them, so what exactly do they do? We'll discuss the difference between a ketogenic diet and a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, and why the latter may be the more important one to discuss. Are there potential health benefits outside of performance of trying a ketogenic diet? We'll take a look. What does the current research say about the ketogenic diet and sports performance? There are studies concluding contradictory things, and researchers have strong opinions on both sides. We'll discuss. Finally, if you'd like to try a ketogenic or high-fat diet, we'll talk about the best ways to go about doing it, and also discuss why a less extreme, high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet may be a better, healthier choice. Our primary guest today is a researcher who has become one of the most well-known faces of the high-fat movement, Dr. Timothy Noakes. Dr. Noakes has been at the center of endurance, science, and sports nutrition research for decades. He wrote, among other books, the very popular Lore of Running in the 1980s. But while training as a high-level marathon runner, Noakes became diabetic, which set him on the path to look for alternative solutions to the accepted high-carbohydrate dietary approach of the 80s and 90s. In episode 23, we interviewed Dr. John Hawley, who, along with his wife, Dr. Louise Burke, is another top name in the world of endurance nutrition research. They are both strong proponents of the use of carbohydrates for sports performance. However, if you look back at both Noakes and Hawley's early research, you'll notice something interesting. It's the same. Noakes, Burke, and Hawley did a lot of their early research on both high-carbohydrate and low-carbohydrate diets together. And yet, the same research led them to very different conclusions. In episode 23, Holly made a strong case for why we need carbohydrates. In this episode, Noakes will take on a lot of that same research and explain why his interpretation is fundamentally different. Along with Dr. Noakes, we also talked with Joe Dombrowski of the EF Education First Draypack World Tour team, who expressed the skepticism shared by many other riders in the Pro Peloton. We also hear from Sepp Kuss of the Lotto NL Yumbo World Tour team. While he hasn't tried a ketogenic diet himself, Sepp talked about a team training strategy of, quote, training high and training low. That is, starting some rides packed with carbohydrates while doing other rides on no carbohydrates. Are you ready? Let's chew the fat and make you fast.
I converted seven years ago to this diet and I was in terrible shape at the time. And I wrote the book called Law of Running, which most runners will know the book. And there it promoted yes. the idea that you should eat a high carbohydrate diet. And it, it took me 33 years before I realized I'd got it completely wrong and had to change. And I realized I'd got it wrong because my own running had got so bad and I'd got fat. And it turns out that I also developed type 2 diabetes, despite the fact that I'd run 70 marathons and or ultra marathons during that time. I was overweight by the end, but not too overweight. I'm guessing some of that's because you were probably doing a little more of the, the traditional sports nutrition and just like, you know, I in the old days used to try to force down the seven, 800 grams of carbohydrates per day. I imagine you were doing something similar. Absolutely. And I used to think that fat was so bad that if I could get it through a day without eating fat, I would think that's been a fantastic day. And now, of course, I realize it was the opposite. So, so to cut a long story short, I, I read the book, The New Atkins for the New You, and then I read Lorraine Cordain's book. And then I decided it's time to change. And so I started the ketogenic, low-carbohydrate diet. And within six weeks, my running had gone back 20 years. I, gone, I went back to running performances I'd last run when I was 40. So I went back from being a 60-year-old to a 40-year-old. And I couldn't believe it. And it was just an amazing change for me. So I can't thank all the people who've driven the, the keto diet over the years for what they've done. They certainly saved my life, and it's gone much beyond that because I'm glad to report that in the last month, my blood results show that my diabetes is in complete remission. That's great to hear, and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so let's dive in a little bit more. What exactly do you mean when you say you're on a ketogenic diet? How low are we talking about in terms of the carbohydrate consumption? Yeah, I must say that uh, I went on this diet and because I read Steve Finney's book, and you know, I have enormous respect for Steve. And when Steve says something, I believe him. So he pushes the ketogenic diet. I find it incredibly difficult to be in a, in a high level of ketosis. So most of the time, my ketone bodies are between 0.3 and, and about one maximum. Although that is ketosis, it's not the sort of ketosis that a lot of people want to get to three or four. I just can't get to three or four. I have to starve and not, not eat and, and to run a couple of hours a day to get to that level of ketosis. So I think it's, it is different for all of us. So, but if you, if you say that a blood ketone level of 0.3 is ketosis, then it's easy to get there. And I get there by eating less than 25 grams of carbohydrate a day. And I've been eating that diet, as I said, for seven years. Get to a higher value, I'd, I don't know how I could do it. And I think there's been an adaptation. I think I was more ketotic when I started. But seven years later, I'm not quite as ketotic. So my understanding is the, the technical definition of a, a ketogenic diet is, is 50 grams or less of carbohydrates per day. And I've certainly heard what you're saying is that everybody is individual and yeah. some people can, can eat that diet and actually their, their blood ketones don't rise that much. So you see, what I don't understand is if you're going to call it a ketogenic diet, then it must be one that generates a significant level of ketosis. So it, we can either classify a diet as low carbohydrate or as low-carbohydrate, high ketones, or something like that. In my feeling, the key is to get the carbohydrates down. And what the ketosis happens, that is an individual thing. I think Steve Finney believes that you really need to get the ketones above two or three to get all the benefits, and I suspect he's right. I suspect from my own experience that when I fast for 24 hours, I really feel a lot better 
and I'm more mentally astute than if I only fast for 12 hours or so. So I think there is something beneficial in getting your ketones up into that range. But I'm not sure that it's easy for all of us to sustain it. So I like to say what is easy to sustain is a carbohydrate diet below 50 grams of carbohydrate a day. And once you get into the diet, it's simple. To keep your ketones very high, that is much more difficult because it means you really have to go on a a very high-fat diet and you have to fast a lot and you probably have to exercise a lot for many of us. So that, that's just my, my definition. I prefer to, to advise people to count the carbohydrate grams. So for our listeners who are, are new to this whole concept, what exactly do you mean by ketosis or ketone bodies? So ketone bodies are a crucial part of our metabolism, and they're one of the reasons why humans survive during starvation. So the simple answer is that ketone bodies are produced by the liver whenever the you're not eating carbohydrates or you're starving. Those are the two, two mechanisms. And the ketone bodies are produced by the liver in response to increased fat coming into the liver in the form of free fatty acids. And the reason why the, the, the liver produces the ketone bodies is to replace the glucose that it can't produce. So all of us know that the brain needs glucose, a certain amount of grams of glucose per day to function. And if we didn't have a reserve capacity, we wouldn't get through starvation. We would all die. The brain, Our brains would stop functioning. So in acute starvation, the ketone bodies rise very quickly, and they then replace glucose. And so as a consequence, you can, your brain can function normally, burning ketones and a little bit of glucose that the liver continues to produce. And with time, the ketones become the dominant fuel for the brain if you continue to, to starve yourself. Ketone bodies are also excellent forms of fuel for muscle, and so you get the double benefit that you're using a fuel that is really good for your brain but can also be used by muscles. And the key for ketosis is you want to keep your blood insulin levels low because that's what keeps the fat in the fat cells. The insulin inhibits fat release from the fat cells. But as you reduce your carbohydrate intake or you starve, then the insulin levels drop The free fatty acids are released from the fat cells, and they come to the liver, and you start to produce ketones. That's only the metabolic side, but there's a whole bunch of other aspects of ketosis, of which Steve Finney's and Jeff Ehrlich are world authorities, and and they seem to suggest that ketones have additional functions in changing gene structure and immune function and making you a much healthier person. But that's an area that I'm not an expert on. One of the criticisms you frequently hear of a, a low-fat or a ketogenic diet is, why in the world would you want to um, emulate starvation? And I do think that is, I personally think that is one of the misconceptions. When you look back in our, our hunter-gatherer societies, for one thing, they weren't in starvation state as much as people would think, but they did frequently fast. But more importantly, you brought up the fact that the other thing that can produce ketosis is very low carbohydrate consumption. And in most hunter-gatherer societies, carbohydrates were a seasonal food. Certainly in the, the winter and the colder months, you, you couldn't really consume much in the way of carbohydrates. You had to eat a high-fat diet. Yeah, precisely. And, and, you know, my parentage is from the north of England. And the north of England was under ice until 3,000 years ago. So what were, we, what were my great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, my ancestors eating? They weren't eating cereals and grains and fruits and veg. They were eating fat animals. 
So I also think it's dependent on, on where you live, where you're born from as to how much carbohydrate you can actually cope with. And my a general feeling, and perhaps you'll amplify this, Trevor, is that if you look at hunter-gatherer populations, most of them stick below about 30% carbohydrate in the diet. And Americans were eating about 35% carbohydrate in the 1960s, and they were lean. And then they pushed it up to 40 to 50%, and that seems to be the critical area. Once you go above 30% of your carbohydrates in your diet, then you start to get all the problems because we're insulin resistant and we can't metabolize the carbohydrates well. So if you're eating 10 or 15% carbohydrates in the diet, you should be fine if, you, if you're not seriously insulin resistant. But it's once you go above 30%. So it's not to say all carbohydrates are bad. It's really the person. It's you, the individual, as to whether you can metabolize that carbohydrate or not. And that does bring up a, another really important question is we're talking about macronutrient ratios. And I certainly have a bias on this, but do the foods matter? Is it just eat high fat? It doesn't matter the source of the fat? Or do you feel you should be focusing on some foods and, and not others? Oh, definitely. The food, the quality of the food is terribly important. And obviously, we go to grass-fed meat and grass-fed fat and so on and fatty fish and avocados and all those things which are which are extremely healthy absolutely right you have to eat clean yeah. to to get the greatest benefits and i think in the long term we'll begin to realize that that you can have a ketogenic diet that's a disaster because you're eating the wrong fats whereas the diet that is the most natural from the most natural products and the most naturally raised animals that to me would be the best so for example i know that in your country you know buffalo might be extremely healthy because it's raised on grass. Yeah. And of course, there's grass-fed beef, but that's not quite so easy to come. In this country, we have lamb that is raised in the, it grows in the in the felt, we call the felt, the countryside, and, and there's nothing to eat there, but these animals thrive on it. They, they can't survive on anything but this, that food, and they're incredibly healthy. So their fat is, is really good. And I think Canadians would say the salmon is, is really healthy. So I think in each, each country, you have to look for where is the animals that are produced in the most healthy way, that's what you should be eating. Yeah, because that's I've talked to people who are on ketogenic diets, and that's always been my concern, is they say, oh, I'm eating very healthy, I'm ketogenic, and I say, what do you eat? And they go, oh, I have bacon for breakfast, and I have a stick of butter for lunch, and I never yeah. touch vegetables. And that's when you have to sit them down and say, that's not the way to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's correct. So they need to eat really healthy fats from healthy animals. Let's spend a little time discussing the, the health benefits outside of sports of a ketogenic diet, whether it pertains to the brain, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, those types of things. So what I've learned in the last seven years, which I was not taught in medical school and is not taught in any single medical school I know of in the world, is that the biggest medical problem in the world is insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is this inability to metabolize carbohydrates effectively, and every time People like myself eat carbohydrates, we over-secrete insulin, and that's, we're hyperinsulinemic, and that then causes damage because insulin is a highly damaging hormone. It makes us fat. It ultimately leads to heart disease, obesity, hyper, and probably also cancer. So the whole focus of chronic degenerative disease should be on diet, and we should be saying, listen, if you've got high blood pressure, you haven't got high blood pressure, you've got insulin resistance and you're eating a high-carbohydrate diet, and that's expressing itself as high blood pressure. The same for obesity, the same for heart disease, the same for cancer. And until we get that message out, we're not going to help people. 
because the message we have is that, oh, it's cholesterol, you see, so you must eat a low-fat diet and you must take statin drugs. All that does to people with insulin resistance, it makes them more diabetic, more obese, more at risk of Alzheimer's disease, more at risk of cancer. So it's, it's the treatment is wrong because this is a metabolic nutritional disorder. And what I show and every other great study that has been done showing that low carbohydrates reverse these conditions. And as long as you're insulin resistant, you can be extremely healthy, but just don't eat more than 25 grams of carbohydrate a day. So that's the message that we're trying to get out. And it's very difficult because neither industry, the food industry nor the pharmaceutical industry want that message to come out. We also talked in a previous podcast about that JAMA study that came out recently reviewing the sugar industry and how back in the 50s and 60s when research was starting to come out showing that sugar was related to, to heart disease, they actually started funding research to point the finger at fat. Exactly. And they all promote the idea that polyunsaturated fats are healthy and more healthy for you than saturated fats. And so the dietary guidelines have no hope because they're always driving the dietary guidelines and they will never allow saturated fat to be thought as anything but toxic. Going to the polyunsaturated fats, it's still that omega-3 to omega-6 ratio is very important. Uh, Would you agree that if most people on a Western diet could increase their omega-3 and decrease their omega-6, that would be a healthier approach, correct? I'm talking mainly about the vegetable oils with lots of trans fats and all sorts of other things that we don't even know about yet. Those are the ones I mean. It is utterly remarkable. The evidence against vegetable oils is so strong. And many people think that the vegetable oils are almost as toxic as sugar and that the the chronic diseases are not just a function of carbohydrates. They're probably also a function of the vegetable oil intake. So I would just say I think the the key message here is There's been an extraordinary amount of research coming out lately showing that that most of these chronic diseases, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, they're all preceded by chronic inflammation. And likewise, there's now a lot of research coming out showing how much uh, simple carbohydrates contribute to inflammation. That's the message we need to get out. How does somebody know when they're insulin resistant the first thing is you start put on weight, and that's around your middle, and you get what's called the insulin roll, the roll of fat around your tummy. If you got that, you're insulin resistant because that's what we call the insulin roll. It's there because you're over-secreting insulin in response to high-carbohydrate diets. And then you get angry. <laughs> your mood will change, and after meals, you often get, you get angry, and you start to eat more frequently, you're eating every three hours because you're, you're addicted to the foods and you have to keep your blood glucose as normal, etc., so those are some of the things. And then eventually your exercise performance starts to fall and you're always craving carbohydrate as well. So those are some of the indicators. The best marker is to measure your fasting insulin level. That's mm-hmm. the insulin level when you wake up. And once it goes above six units, the, uh, the micro international units per, per ml, I think it is, once it goes up above six, you're in trouble. And six is way below the normal value. Most doctors will say, oh, your value is below 25. That's fine. It's not so true. If you're above six, you're already insulin resistant. The next thing that happens is your glucose starts to rise during the day or after meals. And that then affects your red blood cells and they become what we call glycated. And we can measure that as the glycated hemoglobin or HbA1c value. And if your HbA1c value is 4.5 to 5, you're fine, you're carbohydrate sensitive. If it's over 5.5, you are diabetic. 
You won't be told that. You have to get to 6.5 before a doctor will diagnose diabetes. But I can tell you, if your value is 5.5, you are insulin resistant and you're on the route to diabetes and you will have diabetes in 10 years' time. So if your value is about 5.5, you are insulin resistant, cut the carbs, and you will never develop diabetes. So that's one of the best tests is that glycated hemoglobin. And we can tell all the, all the listeners that if you are worried, you're putting on a little bit of weight and you're just a little more lethargic, you haven't got so much energy, just measure your fasting insulin, HbA1c. And if those two values are elevated, that's it. Bye-bye carbohydrates. You've got to cut them back to, let's say, below 100, maybe below 75, maybe below 50. But you will immediately start to feel better. And, those, and your values will start to improve. Jeff Olick says, you know, one of the best tests of, of insulin resistance is how you respond to high carb, high fat diet. If you respond positively to a high fat diet, you're insulin resistant. Another little catch-22 with, with insulin is that um, insulin actually spikes hunger signals. So people who are insulin resistant, you eat carbohydrates, and you're, you're going to get higher and higher insulin levels. That's actually going to make you more and more hungry, and you're going to want to eat more and more carbohydrates, and you, you get quite a vicious cycle going. And that's uh, always been my belief why you have people who are dramatically overeating every day and saying, but I'm hungry all the time. Exactly. Exactly right. And others will tell you that insulin is a satiating hormone, and that's nonsense. No. It just is it's the hunger, one of the hunger hormones. You're quite right. If you think you're confused by these low-carb, high-carb trends, you're not the only one. Chris and I have interviewed many pros who have teammates trying a high-fat or keto diet, and many have team nutritionists who are now addressing it with athletes who want to give it a try. The general impression we've gotten is there's some interest, but it's tempered by a fair amount of skepticism. Riders are hearing about potential gains, but still reluctant to try more than a day or two at a time. That was certainly the feeling of Joe Dombrowski, a world tour rider with EF Education First Drapec presented by Cannondale. Do you or have you believed in ketogenic diet for performance in the past? I've done, I wouldn't say a lot of it, but sort of like a sprinkling of like carbohydrate restricted training before. Am I a believer? For me personally, I don't think that it works very well. This really running the engine hot, high-end anaerobic efforts can be hard for me. And low-carbohydrate diets are, aren't going to help you with that. Whereas if you know your sort of lipid power, fat metabolism could be improved, then maybe that's something to look at. So maybe for me, it's not great, but maybe you've got a sprinter who is a really fast finisher, but if the race is hard or, you know, is over 200 K, they just aren't getting there to the finish. Like they're basically like they can't ever deliver that sprint. In my mind, maybe someone like that is a candidate for, for a bit of that. But if you go crazy with it, then, well, they're also going to lose their, uh, their fast switch and their, mm-hmm. their sprint. Right. So it's, I think it's something that maybe has some validity, but I think I would tend to err on the side of caution and not do it and feel powerful and strong on the bike. Even if maybe I don't have the highest fat metabolism out there, um, then go full ketogenic diet and then just feel sort of like a wet noodle. I've done a bit of it in the past, and honestly, I think I have ridden better and feel better just eating carbs and training harder. 
let's turn a corner and, and talk about the heart of this podcast, performance. There hasn't been a lot of research on how the ketogenic diet plays out in terms of performance. There's been some issues with a lot of those studies. Perhaps you could fill us in, Dr. Noakes, on why that might be and what some of those issues are, and then we can go down the road a little bit further about what findings have found. Yeah, indeed. And uh, so it turns out that Steve Finney was the first guy to do a study on a low-carbohydrate diet in 1984, and he took five individuals, and two of them improved their performance and two worsened on a long-term diet. It was uh, probably four to six weeks, I can't recall, but it certainly wasn't a few days. And that really gave us an indication that on this diet, if you do it for long enough, some people are going to benefit and some people may, may go backwards and get worse. And we were actually the next people in line to do studies. And we were still using very short duration adaptations because if you are in a laboratory and you don't have huge funds, it's very difficult to get people to eat a different diet, which is so completely different to what they've eaten before. And the ideal is you really want to feed them so that, that then you're absolutely certain you know what they're eating. It becomes very difficult to extend a study for more than a week because the costs to you of providing the feed are huge. And so we did some initial studies and we found benefits. I mean, it was astonishing that I think our first two studies, we showed that there was a benefit. Despite that, I was out there still publicizing the high carbohydrate diet. And I didn't quite understand that actually maybe I was still getting it wrong, for, at least for some people. Now, the reason why there are so many carbohydrate studies, because that's what we were doing. We were doing for every one fat study, we were doing 20 carbohydrate studies. And that was for every laboratory. Why? Because Gatorade was funding this research, not our research. We had somebody else funding it. And they weren't interested in finding out whether fat makes you exercise better. They wanted to find out whether carbohydrates make you exercise better. So they had this whole cadre of scientists globally studying carbohydrates. And those people then direct the thinking because they go to conferences and they talk about the high carbohydrate diets and how beneficial it is. And, and no one was doing these studies. And I wrote with Verlick and Steve Finney a review, I think two years ago, and luckily there were about 12 studies of a high fat diet. That was it. Whereas high carbohydrate studies, there's 12 being reported every month at least. And to try to change that paradigm is extremely difficult. And there have been studies of high-fat diets which have produced a negative outcome, and we wrote one of them. We really did a good study, but again, it was a six-days adaptation to a high-fat diet. And what was really interesting was that they did, we then tried, I think it was a 70 or 100K time trial, and the end outcome was the same. The performance was the same, but unfortunately, we had these people sprint four times during the 100Ks. And on the second and third sprints, they did worse if they were on the high-fat diet. But on the fourth sprint, they were all the same. Hmm. And so this was reported showing that you see there's not enough energy coming from carbohydrates. But that's a nonsensical conclusion because the fourth sprint was equal in both groups. If they'd run out of energy in the second and third sprint, then the fourth sprint should also have been down. But it wasn't. And why not? Because they were pacing themselves. And they were getting some information from the body saying, listen, you've done something differently in the last six weeks, six days. And we're not sure if you're going to get to that fourth sprint. So we're going to hold you back on the second and third sprint. And then on the fourth sprint, we're okay because we know it's the finish. So, But that study was called the nail in the coffin study for high-fat diets. And Louise Burke wrote that a big editorial. And then everyone knew. So, okay, high-fat diets. She said it, high-fat diets are a waste of time. 
The problem was that the study actually didn't show that. It studied that the total performance was the same, but it was interpreted as evidence that the diet was not working. I want to be sensitive here because I know you have a, a history with, uh, with Dr. Hawley. And so we actually had Dr. Hawley as a, a guest uh, a year ago. And he, oh, had a, he had a very strong opinion and brought up some of those recent studies, particularly the one about um, race walkers, where they put them on a ketogenic diet. And you did see improvements in their VO2 max, but they found a, a decrease in efficiency. So ultimately, they didn't improve in performance. That's right. No, that's absolutely correct. But the, the problem is that it was a four-week study. And they changed two variables. They changed the high, the intensity of the training went up. They were, it was a training camp. So they were doing high right. intensity training and they were eating a different diet. So obviously, if you're an adapted athlete eating high carbohydrate diet and you increase your training, you're only changing one variable. You're just training harder. The other people have to cope with more training, heavy training and a different diet and they move carbohydrates. So if anyone's addicted to sugar and carbohydrates, they're going to struggle and they're going to underperform. So it, it was a fabulous study for showing one thing, which I'll talk about just now. But it wasn't the final test because no athlete that I've dealt with, a world-class athlete, would say I adapted fully in four weeks. They don't. They say for six or eight weeks, I'm terrible. And then at 14 or 12 or 14 weeks, suddenly things clip in to shape and I started to perform better. But what was really interesting in that study was that if you went and looked at the data, they, they did a race walk at competitive speed before and after adapting to the diet. When they'd adapted to the diet, almost 100% of the energy came from fat. So here they are walking at race pace. And okay, maybe they couldn't keep that race pace up for quite as long. But when they were at race pace, they were burning almost 100% fat. So where's the problem? The fat's providing all the energy. The fact that they tail off maybe in the last 10 kilometers could be any reason. Because performance is not just determined by nutrition. It's, it's determined by all these other things. And if you're feeling lousy because you haven't eaten sugar for a week or two weeks and you've got a sugar addiction and you don't like the food that you're eating and you haven't yet adapted, in the last 10 Ks, why would you be pushed? Why would you push it? You wouldn't. It's a great study, but all laboratory studies have limitations. And the problem I find is that they don't go out and speak to the athletes and ask the athletes for their opinions. And they don't go and look at the guys who adapt properly. Why don't you do a study with the people who fully adapted, as we did, and who benefited? And we showed their metab metabolic profile. It's astonishing. Their metabolism is quite different. And they're not metabolically crippled. High-carbohydrate athletes are metabolically crippled because they can only burn carbohydrates. They can't burn fat at high rates. And that's, that's the problem. So whenever you have to burn fat at a high rate, you can't do it if you're not fat-adapted. So I don't contest that that was a great laboratory study and had major flaws in, in interpreting it for the real world situation. Dr. Holly mentioned that the, the race walkers were not pleasant. The ones who were on the high fat diet while doing the training camp said they were not pleasant people to talk to while they were uh, changing their diet. Yeah. So why, how are they going to perform? How can you do a performance trial under those circumstances? Every day I meet world-class athletes eating a high-fat diet, and they're absolutely happy. They're incredibly happy. They're training harder. They're doing all things right, and they're very happy. So the population was wrong. It doesn't reflect the, the, the usual experience of people eating a high-fat diet. I mean, I've spoken to John about this, and I said, you know, your problem is you're not insulin-resistant. I'm insulin-resistant. That's the difference. 
Now, have you seen, there's this fairly recent study that came out of New Zealand. It's a bit of a, a pilot case study where they actually put athletes on a ketogenic diet for, for 10 weeks. Are you familiar with this one? I've, I've seen the one for four weeks where they showed no change in intense exercise training. That was Phil Maffetone and Paul Larson did that one. It came out like a week ago. I haven't seen the 10-week study, no. So this one was interesting. So they, they say endurance athletes. I'm trying to remember specifically what sport. I think these were uh, triathletes. But anyway, it, it was endurance athletes. And what was fascinating about it, so they went on a ketogenic diet for, for 10 weeks. They did see a bit of a drop in their performance, but all the athletes lost weight. Their body composition improved. Several of them saw improvements in, in health conditions, skin conditions. One of them had, I believe, a prostate issue that, that seemed to resolve while they were on the diet. And what was really fascinating is they did a year follow-up with all these athletes after they had left the, the study and they were no longer being controlled. Now, well, none of them stayed ketogenic. They all chose to remain high-fat, low-carbohydrate. And what they said they did was over time, they slowly brought back a little bit of carbohydrates into their diet um, to where they felt they were performing optimally. Um, but like I said, it was still a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet. Yeah. And they all said, we're performing better, we're recovering better, we feel better. And they just said, I'm never going to go back to a high-carbohydrate diet again. Yeah, and, and you know, in Jeff Volek's faster study where he took the 100 best uh, ultra-distance runners in America, they were exactly the same. These are guys who'd eaten a high-carbohydrate diet. They then converted, and they never went back. Right. They said, I'll never go back to that diet, and it's exactly the same finding. And, and Trevor, you make a very strong point. You see, a laboratory trial doesn't tell you all those things that you mentioned, the recovery, the loss of weight. Those are not measured in these single outcome performances. Let's say you're eating a junk food diet, which is a high-carbohydrate, high-processed food diet, and you're getting infections once every three months. Well, that's going to affect your performance in the long term, or you're getting more injuries, or you're not recovering. That, that's not the way you want to be. You, you want to be, I'm, I'm convinced that you're going to be much healthier. And the health issue in the long term is going to be what's important to your performance. And again, I just make the point that that's missing in these single studies in the laboratory where you train people for four weeks and then you, you test them. You're not testing what's really important. What's really important is how can the people train? How often do they train? How often do they get sick? What about injuries? All those other factors. And I think that the, the, the judgment is out there. The athletes are saying, no, exactly as you said, I recover more quickly. Now, what about another study where they showed that even though you increased your, your fat oxidization, it seemed to actually damage glycogenolysis? So for our listeners, um, your ability to use carbohydrates was reduced. And the, the point that they were making in that study is, in a, a race situation where you have to do very high intensity, ultimately, you're, no matter how fit you are, no matter how adapted you are, you are going to be relying on carbohydrates. And if those processes for breaking down carbohydrates for fuel are, are uh, downgraded, you're not going to be able to perform as well. The interesting, because that study wasn't designed to answer that question. It was designed to answer another question. And then when the other study didn't come out, they reinterpreted that you have to eat lots, you have to burn lots of carbohydrates to, to perform. But they're not looking at athletes, world-class athletes who are fully fat adapted. And then you'll see whether they need carbohydrates or not. What we showed when we looked at fat adapted athletes is the remarkable thing. 
is that they would, from the first pedal stroke, they were burning fat at huge rates, 1.2 to 1.5 grams per minute, from the first pedal stroke. And what you do then is you just burn a little bit of extra carbohydrate. But from day, from the first stroke, you are, you're conserving carbohydrate. Whereas if you're a carbohydrate-adapted athlete, you've got the surge of carbohydrate from the first pedal stroke. But unfortunately, after two or three hours, you've got less carbohydrate, and now you can't turn on the fat. So I could prove exactly the opposite to what John told you, that once you get into the zone where you've got less carbohydrate available, you want to be a fat burner because that's the only, one, only way you're going to survive. No one's addressed that question. So but what about that, that issue of the, the high intensity? Well, you know, I know world-class athletes who are winning Olympic gold medals who are eating this diet, and they're doing explosive sport, or they're swimming 50 or 100 meters. And they suddenly get better when they go on the diet because they lose weight and they be, probably become a bit more buoyant, or a bit more buoyant, but they become more streamlined. So to tell me that they don't, that's not explosive, that you can't do explosive sport without carbohydrates is nonsensical. I don't see it. These people are tied to the model. They're tied to the model that high carbohydrates are needed for you to do explosive sport. But no one has ever shown that. It's extremely difficult to study fat oxidation when you're at high intensity exercise. Because for various reasons, which we don't need to go into, you cannot measure how much fat's being burned when you're doing high-intensity exercise. So we all just say, well, it's all carbohydrates because we can't measure how much fat's being used. There's one experiment done by a chap called Paul Larson who's very powerful on this high-fat diet uh, when he tested sprinters. And he showed that the best sprinters didn't burn more carbohydrate than the worst sprinters. They burnt more fat. And that was, that's a novel study which kind of gets hidden. It's in the British Journal of Sports Medicine and Larson, L-A-U-R-S-E-N, is one of the authors. It's very complex because the methodology is difficult to show how he was measuring fat use. But he's the only one who's done it to try to measure how much fat you use. And so because no one studies it, we just sit back and say, well, when you run fast, you're burning carbohydrate. But we actually don't know whether that's true. But that's because they're measuring using RER, and as soon as you, you get out of any sort of metabolic uh, homeostasis, RER is really not accurate. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the story that you become inefficient, that's not true. You, when you burn fat, you're going to use more oxygen. So then what they, the scientists will measure that as a, a lack of running efficiency, but it's not that. It's you're burning fat, and you burn fat, you need more oxygen. But then again, you see, that's, oh, but you mustn't use too much oxygen because that's bad for you. You want to use little oxygen during exercise. But that's not true. And my point being is if you're burning carbohydrate, you will burn less oxygen, use less oxygen. So you'll appear to be more efficient, but you're not. You're, you haven't suddenly lost your stride or changed your mechanics and make you inefficient. That's not true. The mitochondria just need to use more oxygen when they're burning fat. I'm curious to know why it takes the length of time it does to adapt. And also, how does an athlete know when they have become fully adapted? Those, those are great questions. I think that you only know by your performances. I mean, for me, it was astonishing. After six weeks, my performances just suddenly improved dramatically. With, you know, from run to run, it was like I was just going back a decade every training session. So, you know, I don't think that elite athletes will notice that, but they will notice that their training intensity goes up during. They can now start to train harder, and then their performances will start to go up or back to normal. They will normalize. And that takes time. And once the athlete notices that, then they've, they're probably fat adapted. And what's, I don't think what's you, the underlying process that's taking, taking those six to eight weeks? Is that extremely complex? Well, yeah, I, I think that you 
firstly, all the mitochondria have got to change to burning fat, so you've got to retool the mitochondria in the muscles. But don't ever forget the the confidence. You know, you've got to learn that this is safe. I mean, when I converted the first race I ran half marathon, I took carbohydrates with me because I was scared that I'm going to get a hyperglycemic attack. Turns out, of course, it didn't happen. But but you've got to get confidence that the thing is working because you've been brought up to believe that carbohydrates are essential. And so, what do you believe? Carbohydrates are essential. I'm I'm breaking the rules. I can't be as good as I was. And you have to get the confidence and that this, in fact, is the difference. So that's, I think there's a huge mental training component to it and that you you learn that actually I can do it on this new diet and I don't have to hold back. So I had an interesting experience. I've never actually gone to the, the ketogenic level, but obviously I eat a, a much lower carbohydrate, high, higher fat diet. But I also do a lot of uh, partial fasting because of all the, the research I've read on the health benefits of that. And I remember the year I started, I would usually have Tuesday as a day when I wouldn't eat or just have something small in the morning and then I wouldn't eat the rest of the day. And we had a training race here in Boulder that I would go to. And I remember the, the first time I did that, I think I lasted 15 minutes. I just couldn't hang on. <laughs> but I kept yeah. doing it every Tuesday and it took about six to eight weeks, but what shocked me was by about the eight week point, I would actually go and do three sets of my high intensity intervals, then connect up with the group and do the whole training race with them. And the training race was about an hour and a half long. So this was two and a half hours of high, high intensity work. And I was doing that pretty much not having eaten very much that day. And the mm. only thing I would take with me on the ride was a bottle of water. And you see that we haven't studied. That, that's the problem. But, but everyone, there's so many people telling me that. We have to start thinking that there's something in this. Let's make it quite straight. We were the first people to produce gels for use during marathon running. Myself and the South African runner Bruce Fordyce, who wins the Comrades Marathon seven times. That's the, the 90-kilometer race in South Africa and becomes an icon. And we developed this product, and I just regret that. We both regret it, that we ever made it. So, Because we convinced runners that you can't go five yards without needing more carbohydrates. Whereas now we're learning you can go hundreds of kilometers without needing to eat. But to get people to believe that and understand it is going to take a long, long time. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, I mentioned this in a previous podcast where I, I talked about my background with the, the paleo diet. When I was racing full time, I was classic sports nutrition. I was trying to get my 800 grams of carbohydrates um, per day. And yeah. uh, I, I, I always tell the story, I was getting sick all the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. When I went on the paleo diet, I was 39, about to turn 40, and had another year of racing professionally. It was one of my best years. <laughs> yeah. So that, and that, uh, that happens so often. That happens so often. You just can't ignore it. People like Dave Scott win six Ironman in the 1970s. He converted three years ago to the high fat diet. He read my book, The Real Meal Revolution. And he converted and he said, oh, my gosh, you know, I made it. I got it wrong all those years. And he is simple. He says, I will not allow my Ironman triathletes to train on a high carbohydrate diet. Full stop. He says, you can do it for five or six years, but then you collapse. And he has a guy who's done both. But the most remarkable study story, which, which I have to share with you, was in 1984, Paula Newby-Fraser comes from Zimbabwe to South Africa. I meet her. We have long discussions about training. I help her a little bit with her training. 
she goes to the one Ironman. She does extremely well, and she on little training, and she decides, okay, I'm going to become a professional athlete. She goes to San Diego, and at that time, she reads Steve Finney's work on the high fat intake, and she phones me from America and says, Tim, I've just read Steve Finney's uh, article. He says we should eat more fat. What do you think? I said, Paula, I think that's a great idea, and I say that even when I'm promoting high carbohydrate <laughs> diets to all. So, so she adopts the high-fat diet, low-carbohydrate. Now, I did not tell her to restrict carbohydrate, but she did. She chose to. She wins eight Ironmen and she – sorry, 25, 28 Ironmen, and she wins the Kona World Championship eight times. When she comes to South Africa, she seeks me out because we've had this long friendship. She says, Tim, the most important single piece of advice I ever had in my whole athletic career was what you told me. So I said, Paula, what did I tell you? She said, you, to eat a high-fat diet. Yes, I said, but Paul, I never told you to cut the carbs. She said, well, I did it anyway and it worked. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's worth having you point out why people can go for such long distances once they're keto adapted and talk about the, the number of kilocalories stored in your body as fat versus carbohydrates that are stored and, and how that works out when, when you've fully keto adapted. Could you uh, explain that? So what people have to understand is humans evolved to have very small capacity to, to store carbohydrates. And, and I don't know why that is, but there has to be a reason. Part of it is when you store carbohydrates, you store water. So we can store about, about, let's say, 600 grams of carbohydrates, and each gram provides four calories. So that's 2,400 calories, 2.4 thousand calories as in carbohydrate. But even a lean athlete has probably got, I'm guessing now, 40,000 calories in fat. And so the, the, this, the size is enormous difference. So if you can just burn the fat, you can go for probably four days of running. <laughs> Whereas on carbohydrates, you're going to make about two hours. And so what, what we've done and what our research with John Hawley, because he was one of our key researchers that we worked with, we did experiments, which I now understand. We were trying to stop athletes burning any fat. So we were loading them with carbohydrates before the exercise and then loading them up during. And the consequence, they burnt very little fat during the exercise and they burnt mainly carbohydrate. But we never studied beyond two hours because that was kind of what you can do in a laboratory. But once those people go beyond two hours and they're getting depleted of their carbohydrates, they've now got to get us another source. And so... If they're reading the Gatorade website, they'll say you must eat 100 grams of carbohydrate every hour in the Ironman to keep you going. But we know athletes who get through the Ironman, even world-class athletes, eating 20 or 30 grams of carbohydrate an hour. So they've had 120 grams of carbohydrate or maybe 160 grams of carbohydrate during the race. And they do perfectly well and they do eight hours or whatever. What we're proving is that it's possible if you can access your fats that it can take you through these events because there is just so much fat available. And again, that, that's how humans evolved. We evolved to be fat burners, not to be carbohydrate burners, as because, as, as Trevor said, we, we were, had only seasonal exposure to carbohydrate. Carbohydrate was not there available all the time. But fat was, if you could catch fat animals, there was fat available always. So that's actually something I wanted to ask you about that you might not have an answer for. But... You know, as you said, because of the, the, the nature of the research, there, there aren't a ton of studies on this yet. However, we're seeing lots of top-tier cycling teams that are starting to promote a ketogenic diet. And we have athletes that are top cyclists who at least say they are on a ketogenic diet. What do you think is driving that? Is it simply just experimentation or 
Well, I think it's I think in cycling weight is such a big issue, as you know. And I know Chris Froome wrote a lovely story because Chris Froome's wife is from Cape Town, so he's from my town. And and Chris tells a story that he came second in the Tour of Spain, and that was when his breakthrough year was, and, and he lost six kilos. And he arrived in Cape Town, and his girlfriend said, you look dreadful, what happened? She says, well, I just came second in the Tour of Spain. So she says, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying your weight, you've lost so much weight. She, he said, I just started starving myself, and, and the more I starved, the better I did because of the weight loss. And then he, she said, you've got to eat a high-protein diet because I think she has some nutritional background. Well, of course, there's no such thing as a high-protein diet. It'll be a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet. And he adopted that. And, and the key is he's clearly insulin-resistant. And he, he, she said he's got a sugar addiction. He loves sugar. And he couldn't regulate his weight on a high-carbohydrate diet. But now, in the training season, he will restrict his carbohydrates. But during the competition, as you said, he'll he'll have more carbohydrates on the day that he does the difficult stages. But that it's not the 800 to the kilogram of carbohydrate that they used to eat. It's now, as in the range you're talking about, 200 grams, up to 200 grams. And to me, that is still a very low, that's still a low carbohydrate diet, particularly if you're doing five or six hours cycling a day. That's what I was going to ask you about. So people at the highest level, you know, I'm, I still have a hard time believing that they could perform at their best racing as much as they are and as intense as the race are as being on, on a pure ketogenic diet. I yeah. have to imagine that they're, they're more like me, a high fat, low carbohydrate, but not quite to the ketogenic level. And it sounds like you would agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think to me, I can't see why you'd ever need to eat more than 200 grams of carbohydrate. Because, well, I'll tell you another thing we found in our experiments that, that if you're carbohydrate adapted and we make you do exercise for a couple of hours, you still burn carbohydrates for the rest of the day. So you're eating more carbohydrate than you need. But if you're fat adapted, you do burn quite a lot of carbohydrate during the exercise. But afterwards, you, you switch off the carbohydrates and you burn fat. So the carbohydrate, you only need the carbohydrate for the exercise. You don't need it for the rest of the day. And so the people who are eating more than 300 grams of carbs a day are maybe burning 250 grams during the exercise and the other carbohydrate they're burning during the rest of the day, which you don't need to. So there's some cutoff value of how much carbohydrate each of us need. And it's not, I don't think it's much above 200 grams. And for most people, 200 grams would be a low carbohydrate diet. They would think that they are really restricting carbohydrates quite severely. Yeah. And, and that's, we've talked about that before, that if you, you are going to consume those simple carbohydrates, do it during the exercise um, and then get away from that on uh, the rest of the day. So to kind of summarize all this, it sounds like the issue with a lot of the, the contrary research is simply the fact that they, the people they were studying weren't fully adapted, keto adapted or, or fat adapted. And so they were often researching them at that, that low point when their body's adjusting to this completely different diet. And you see different results in the, those rarer studies where they take people who are fully adapted. But it, it also sounds like the, the research that really needs to happen is taking those fully adapted people and seeing how they're able to do high-intensity work. And, and yeah, and we've done that. We did that one guy came to us who was, who was the leading triathlete of his age, over 40 in South Africa. And he said, you know, I can do the Ironman and I, I don't need any carbohydrates or excess carbohydrate during the Ironman. But I want to know if I do shorter distance races. I seem to go a bit slower in the half Ironman. I think that if I took carbs. So we tested him because he was such an amazing athlete. He could produce the same performances. And we showed that carbohydrate ingestion impaired his Ironman performance, the longer performances of 100Ks, 
But over 20 Ks, they improved his performance. So taking carbohydrates helped him at a short distance, but it had a slightly negative effect on the on 100 Ks or further cycling. So I think that that's probably the truth, that, that there is a distance at which a little bit of extra carbohydrate will help you. But once you get into the pure longer distances, no, it's not going to help. And, and there's no biological reason why it should. Because you've got, the, as long as you're, too, you're tooled up, your muscles are tooled up to burn fat, they can provide all the energy you need. I think what I'd like to hear from you now is, okay, this all sounds incredibly fascinating. I want to try this myself. How do I do it? What do I not do? What do I do? But let's talk about the physical and mental process of going keto. Yeah, I think that the best advice I can give is the way I did it is you, you start, you cut out all sugar. That's, that's the first thing you, you really look for. And you cut out cereals and grains because I think those are the two re- and vegetable oils. Those are the real toxic components to the diet. Okay. So bread has to go Man, and cereals heart. and grains for breakfast has to go. And you start eating high fat, high protein breakfast, which are usually cooked and they can be, and eggs need to be a big component of that. And they, whatever else you like, fish, yogurt, but it must obviously be full cream, no carbohydrate yogurt. And the, and so you start eating those foods and, and there are great lists in our book, Real Meal Revolution. We have a fantastic green list, which gives you all the foods that you can eat. But I don't think you want to go from 500 grams of carbohydrate a day to, to a hundred. I've had lots of athletes who come and say, I can't get out of bed in the morning on a hundred grams a day. So you need to cut slowly. So maybe you, you start at 250 grams. So you need to start counting the grams of carbohydrate and understand which foods have got lots of carbohydrate and which don't have. And so you slowly narrow your foods down by cutting out those higher carbohydrate foods. And so you're left with a range of foods that you can eat, which will give you 250 grams of carbohydrate a day. And you stick there for a couple of weeks. And then you go to, and let's say you, you, your performance shouldn't be impaired at that level. Then you go down to 200 and then you go down to 150 and then maybe lower if you want to. But I think it really depends on, on how insulin resistant you are. And if you're not insulin resistant and you're insulin sensitive, there's no need for you to go below 250 grams, 200 grams, because you, you don't get the same effects from those 200 grams that I get. They, they make me diabetic, but for, if you're insulin sensitive, it's fine. So, so that's, the pressure is not to, to reduce it below 200 grams. And you'd only want to go lower if you felt that your performance could be improved. And I, I can tell you, it'd be really difficult for us to do studies to show that all athletes benefit by being at 50 grams compared to 200 grams. That, that, that there must be so much individual variability. Some will do very well on 25 and some will be on 200. And, and you know what? There's no laboratory study that can tell you what's, what's going to work for you. You have to get out and test it. And that, that's the other point I say about the laboratory studies. That's the limitation. They tell you what the average response was for that group of study students or people who are being studied. For you, it's what you do. So I would say you get down to 250, 200, and then you reduce and see what the benefits are. And by this time, you need to start looking at your HbA1c and your fasting insulin, and you see if they are elevated. Well, then unfortunately, you're going to have to go lower. But if they're normal, then that's fine. You can stop at that carbohydrate intake. So that those are the guidelines. And and uh, and then you have to learn to cook as well. That's the other thing hmm. that to to yes. diet properly, you need to be able to cook. But what I like hearing you say is you're not taking the approach of you must be ketogenic to get the gains, or 
you're wasting your time. You're saying for some people, they, they might get benefits from that and it might be worth experimenting with it. But the key thing here is to get the carbohydrates down and be on a, a high fat, low carbohydrate diet. Yeah, exactly. And, and what you define as the low carbohydrate is for each of us to discover. And you have to find out what, how many grams make a difference. And, you know, I've worked with guys who've lost 130 kilograms. That's 260 pounds wow. or more. And I can tell you, if they eat 30, oh, sorry, if they eat 50 grams of carbs, their weight starts coming, going up again. They right. have to stick at 25. The cutoffs are remarkable for each of us. There's a carbohydrate intake that, that will either make you right or wrong. And I'm convinced that if I'd eaten 50 or 60 grams of carbs a, a, a day for the last seven years, I wouldn't be in remission now. I had to go to the extremes. I had to go to 25 grams. And over seven years, then you get the change. So my point being that for each of us, there's a cutoff value of carbohydrate that's beneficial. Is there a way to get a general idea of what, what that quantity of carbohydrates should be based on your body type, your age, or is it really much more specific and individualized than that? Yeah, it's so hard for individuals. This is really personalized medicine. And the, but the beauty is that you can answer the question for yourself. You, know, you don't have to go to a, a medical laboratory to find out. So you'll soon see whether you're training, as, as Trevor spoke about his own experiences, that he found that initially it was terrible, but then he slowly improved and eventually he was performing much better on this particular diet than he would have believed possible. So I think that's the beauty. You've just got to you are, use yourself as an experiment. We are each an experiment of one. And you just have to judge by your, from, from your response to the diet as to what's happening. I don't think I've ever been purely ketogenic, but I've gone lower, I've gone higher. And it's, as you said, experimentation, see where your energy level's at, where your performance is at. And I just find, uh, I'm, I feel my healthiest, my energy levels are my best, I'm performing my best. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And so that, that's the point, that the body will tell you how much carbohydrate it needs. But you just have to be sensitive and listen carefully to what it's telling you. We, you must always try the, the opposite experiment. So... Let's say you, you thought that 125 is ideal. Well, go down to 25 and see what happens, and you'll see your performance is awful. And go up to 250, you'll see it's not better, or it could be worse, and then you know. Right. I've mentioned Bruce Fordyce. You know, he, he was really interesting. He said that you know people run the, a marathon 10 times, and they say, yeah, I've run this marathon 10 times. He said, no, 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 no. You've run it once, but you just repeated the same errors 10 times. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's the message you have to get across. Another concern I guess I've seen from people out there is if I want to go into full ketosis and I get there and then, oh, you know, I have this urge and I can't help myself and I, I cheat and I have a cheat day or a cheat meal, does that throw everything off? Does it take a while to go back into ketosis or is it a simple blip and it, it's not a big concern? I'm glad to tell you it's not a big concern. What we, We're studying that question right at this moment. And if you're really properly fat adapted and you increase your carbohydrate intake for one meal, it makes no difference. Basically, you just, you just store the carbohydrate and you burn it off the next, in the next day you do a high intensity exercise. The, on the other hand, if you're carbohydrate adapted and you eat carbohydrate, you respond totally differently. You immediately burn the carbohydrate because you have to because your body's simply got too much carbohydrate on board. Mm -hmm. So cheat meal is no problem at all. What the problem is, is if you do two cheat days together, it takes about two days to get back to normal. So then if you're doing two cheat days a week, it means you've got four days where you're eating a high-carb diet, essentially, and you've got three days on a high-fat diet, and that's, that's not going to help. 
Right. So the odd cheat, uh, cheat meal is fantastic. If you extend it to more than a meal, then you've got a problem because then you're going to lose a day of, you're going to have to take a day to come back to, to normal. So your recommendation really is that this, to, to reap the, the full benefits of it, it, it has to be a virtually a, a, a permanent thing, a consistent thing with the occasional cheat and you'll be fine and you'll, you'll get the most benefit out of that that way. Yeah, and, and the, the other reason why you don't cheat is because if you've got a sugar addiction, and most of us, and I had a terrible sugar addiction, I still have, but I don't eat sugar, and that's uh, it's not apparent. So I'm a, a sugar-holic in, in rehabilitation. <laughs> right. And, and, and most many athletes are like that. And to get off it, you have to just, you can't eat sugar. So I don't mind you cheating on healthy carbs, but please don't eat processed sugars and sweets. That's a disaster because that's going to kick you back into searching for sugar and you're just activating the addiction again and that you don't want to do. The, the one slice of, of chocolate, one cube of chocolate becomes a whole slab of chocolate every day and, and you're gone. Mm-hmm. You won't come from that. Yep. You're making me hungry. Talk about chocolate. <laughs> I'll just let you know. So one last quick question. What's yeah. your thought on some people are now supplementing with, with ketone bodies? Brianna Stubbs is a great friend of mine, and she's the lady who's done most of the research in that area. She did the work at Oxford, and she's now in San Francisco, uh, developing with, working with a company to start marketing the product. And I went to see her in San Francisco, and the reason I tell you this is because there's something about it which I don't yet know. And at that time, my glucose was still running high at about 6.5, and she gave me a thimble full of about, I don't know, a couple of ml of the ketone esters. And my glucose dropped a millimole within about 30 minutes. It was astonishing. It went from 6.5 to 5.5. It was like taking a medicine. There's no medicine I know other than insulin, which can drop your glucose dramatically. And my ketones went from 0.3 to 3 in 20 minutes. So the product they are producing has an incredible effect. Because I I, I never get to 3 ketones unless I've run a marathon and not eaten. So it was a huge effect in me. And so it's metabolically, it's very, very powerful. I think it's still early days to say whether it's going to affect performance. If it affects performance, it's going to be due through the brain. And in other words, the ketones would act like glucose. You know, if you take glucose on your mouth, you, your performance goes up. And it can't be because it's you're metabolizing it. It's because it has some direct link to the brain. So I wouldn't look for the effects in, in a metabolic effect in the muscle because the muscle's got so much energy anyway. And, and in 30 minutes, you're not going to run out of fuel. So, so why should ketones make a difference? Fair and enough. I think that, that that's going to be an interesting area. But it's clear to me that these ketones are very powerful. Full disclosure here. Chris and I weren't able to get an interview with a pro doing the keto diet in time for this podcast to go live. But we're always happy to talk with world tour rider Sepp Kuss. Sepp's team, Lotto NL Yumbo, works with another famous researcher in nutritional science, Dr. Asker Jukendrup. Dr. Jukendrup has researched another side of this high-low carbohydrate debate called nutritional periodization. Basically, you have times when you do both. Sepp shares his first-hand impressions of this periodized nutrition. I wouldn't say we do full-on keto diet, but it's it's definitely um, training training high, training low, which are kind of the new uh, Could you titles. Do, so yeah, explain that. So a little bit more. training training high is training with um, yeah, large amounts of muscle glycogen. So, for example, that would be yeah, eating a eating a really big big breakfast and then 
of, of high carb and then training immediately after. And then that, that trains your, uh, gastric emptying and mm-hmm. your body's ability to, to process those carbs. And then the maximum is around 60, 60 grams, mm-hmm. um, an hour. And on the other hand, the training low is training with low muscle glycogen and that can be fasted rides, uh, training with, uh, reduced carbohydrate intake per hour training two sessions a day, uh, things like that. So we, we definitely do do both. Yeah. We've got a really good nutritionist asker, Jikendrup. Oh, he is your, yeah. I, I didn't realize yeah. that. Okay. And yep. him and, uh, Nancy Von Berg. Yeah. They're super knowledgeable about different ways to train high, train low and, and when to do it. Cause I think, yeah. When are, when are you doing this? Um, throughout the season or in specific? Yeah. Throughout the season. I think for the, the training low, it's not good to do it really during the season. Right. But yeah, a lot in the, you know, preseason, off season, yeah, training low and yeah. And then in the more, um, race heavy part of the season training high, cause you need to, yeah, a lot of people's bodies are, cannot, process that 60 grams of carbs an hour so you need to train your uh train your gut yeah i know and i know asker is big into almost thinking like that the gut and the stomach are part of what needs to be trained in an athlete because Mm -hmm. it's is essential tell me about the experience how how has it been going how does it how does it feel when you're when you're on these high and low um schemes yeah for the high i i think this it's generally what i have done in the past. So it's not too new to me. If, if you're, if you're doing it on your own, it's, yeah, I think it's the safest training high. I, I was, I guess, surprised by the, the amount that you actually need to eat, like to actually get 60 grams carbs an hour, which is a lot. Yeah. A lot of food. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and then yeah, training low. So for me personally, I'm not really, uh, yeah, a fat, fat burner. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can, I can have a, I can create a lot of lactate, which is good in certain race situ- like accelerations and a lot of good sprinters or classics riders have a high, um, yeah, VLA max. They can create a lot of lactate, but they're also burning that. Using it, it as fuel. Yeah. And, and it comes at a, at a, at a price. So for, for guys like me and it's, it's important to also do the training low. And now that for me, that's a big shock to my system because it's like, oh, no breakfast. Do you feel like you're going to bonk? (laughs) Yeah, it feels like a bonk, just bad mood, sluggish. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't hangry. Yeah, real hangry. I think it's only good if you do it consistent. You know, it's not like one training low session is going to improve your your fat metabolism or anything. But yeah, you know, you have to go not all in, but you have to do it in a sustainable way for, mm-hmm. for a while to probably see any, any benefits. But, uh, and are you seeing perceptible, uh, uh, improvements in this would be an improvement in probably your, your long-term sustainable endurance? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, in general, I feel like I've maybe better endurance than I did, but I, I don't, it's, I can't say if it's because of the you know, training low or... Mm-hmm. Let's get back to the interview and Dr. Noakes' summary of what he's recommending. So 
My issue is if you're insulin resistant like myself and you eat high carbohydrate diets, your performance starts to dip quite quickly in my impression. Maybe within five or six years, you start to put on weight and you struggle to perform as well as you did when you were eating a less carbohydrate. And, and you're now setting yourself up for diabetes. And that's what really worries me, that when we look at the, the world's best athletes, the Kenyans, and you see them running on very high carbohydrate diets, 75% carbohydrates, and then everyone says, well, that's what I must be. Well, the answer is they, they're probably different metabolically, and they're probably highly insulin sensitive. And maybe to be the world's best marathon runner or the world's best Olympic cyclist at Olympic distance cycling, you have to be incredibly insulin sensitive and able to burn carbohydrates at high rates. Or if you want to be the world's best four-minute miler or a world record holder in the mile, maybe you have to be incredibly insulin sensitive. But that's, that's that population, and it's a tiny, tiny proportion of the population. The rest of us, and certainly the majority of recreational athletes, if we force them to eat high-carbohydrate diets, we're putting on the, them on the path to diabetes. And we have to realize you can go to these marathons or go to the cycling races and the top cyclists are all lean, but just go a little bit back an hour behind and see how fat the people are. And those people should not be eating carbohydrates because they're insulin resistant and the carbohydrates are killing them. And all the exercise in the world can't reverse insulin resistance. And you, the only way you can cope with insulin resistance is eat a low carbohydrate diet. So one of the problems I have is that many of the people advocating high carbohydrate diets are not medical doctors and they don't understand the consequences of getting tens of thousands of recreational athletes who are insulin resistant eating carbohydrates. You are killing them. So in summary, if you're a world-class elite athlete, eat your carbohydrates as long as you're insulin sensitive. But for the rest of us, for the recreational athletes, you will do your health a, a lot of it good if you simply cut the carbohydrates and eat more fat, lose the weight, and be much healthier as a consequence. So Dr. Noakes, you're on the clock. You've got one minute. What do people most need to understand about the ketogenic diet from your, from your point of view? What, what most athletes need to know is that most of us are recreational athletes, and a recreational athletes can do all he needs to do or she needs to do on a high-fat diet. The only exceptions are the elite athletes who clearly may need carbohydrates to perform optimally in events lasting, let's say, from a minute up to, to two or three hours. And they may benefit by eating more carbohydrates. The reason I stress this is recreational athletes are much more likely to be insulin resistant and overweight. And if you're insulin resistant, you're heading for diabetes if you eat a high carbohydrate diet. So learn from my experience. I ate a high carbohydrate diet for 33 years. And I could not outrun the bad effects of the bad diet. So eat a very healthy diet with lots of healthy fats and healthy proteins and minimal carbohydrates. And if you're insulin resistant, you will be healthy all your life and you'll avoid all these chronic diseases and lifestyle. Perfect. My turn? Yeah, I'm not sure I have one because I'm such a novice at all this. But Trevor, you, I know you know your nutrition. so I'm just going to expand on that in a point I've made before, which is the remember your sources. Just because you are eating the, the right ratio of fat to carbohydrates and protein doesn't mean that you are eating a healthy diet, especially if you're trying to be high fat by eating lots of bacon and butter and avoiding vegetables. So a couple very quick tips there. You still should be eating uh, fruits and vegetables. Just pick your sources. So vegetables, your cruciferous vegetables, 
That's things like bok choy, um, Brussels sprouts, kale, uh, broccoli. They're all low carbohydrates. Likewise, your, your low carbohydrate fruits are your berries. And also focus on your healthier fats. So a great one is, is coconut oil, which does have a lot of saturated fats, but it's, it's medium chain triglycerides, which have been shown to have a lot of health benefits. So pick your sources. You still want to be eating healthy foods. I think I would close with don't latch on to trends. And just because you hear Team Sky is doing it doesn't mean that you have to follow their regime or cut things immediately and down to extreme levels. Like Dr. Noakes was saying, this is a, a experimentation you have to go through with yourself. And it's a fi about finding a sweet spot. Sometimes that's really low and sometimes that's not as low. You have to listen to your body like you do with so many things in, in sports. And this is... is no different. And nutrition is so important that you, you really have to tailor it to yourself. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velonews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, the Velonews Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velonews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Dr. Noakes, Joe Dombrowski, Sepp Coos, Coach Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.